1: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I am here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. Hey, hey, hey. Busy
0: week, you guys. Big time over here. Yeah, been getting nothing done. We, so I hear. We not have, a
1: damn we thing. We have a sponsor for the ages this week. EA Sports. FIFA 14. Uh, they they sent us an uh, early look at the game. It's basically ruined the last week of our productive life and I have no
2: regrets. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, I've been kicking Aaron's ass in this game for more than wow. a decade now.
1: I hope that, I hope that doesn't get fact-checked.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just awesome. It's, uh, it's, it's really great. It's my favorite game, and they're sponsoring the podcast, and it makes me deliriously happy.
1: So now we're sponsored by my favorite video game and my favorite email newsletter company, Tiny Letter, from the good people on MailChimp. It's a simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter. We thank them always for their sponsorship. Evan, who did you talk to this week? This week I talked to Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, He has a new book out. It's called David and Goliath. It's about underdogs. You should check it out. And here he is. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Not at all. Also, congratulations on the book coming out, which should be by the time this airs. What's the date on the book? Uh, October 1st. And I can say... With complete honesty that I read it in two sittings uh, and was completely absorbed in it. I kind of wanted to start with the book but also maybe kind of like look at it as a little bit of a case study on how you find these ideas and sort mm-hmm. of how they develop. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just curious maybe give a brief overview of the book uh, mm-hmm. which will be better than mine and then and then we'll kind of see from there.
2: It's uh, it's called David and Goliath. And I have a difficult time describing it, but it's a a book about underdogs and about giants. And the essential argument is that we misunderstand the power dynamics between shepherd boys and giants. And we are constantly in a variety of forms thinking of advantages uh, when as advantages when there are actually disadvantages and looking at disadvantages and not realizing that they can be highly advantageous. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like our software, that our mental software that we use to make sense of conflict, I think is defective. And with that sort of extravagantly broad premise, <laughs> <laughs> I, I get to go in any number of directions. And so I have a section that looks at really two education case studies of this phenomenon of... Thinking of something as an advantage when it's a disadvantage. And then I have uh, a whole riff on what I call uh, desirable, not I call, but what is what has been a term, a lovely term from two psychologists at UCLA called the Bjorks, called desirable difficulty. Um, the notion that sometimes when you make something harder, it's better for you. Um, and that's the middle part of the book. And then the end of the book is really a kind of examination of. Giants and how giants screw up, when the kinds of mistakes you make because you are big and powerful, mm-hmm. and that's sort of a story about Northern Ireland and a story about uh, the California Three Strikes Crusade, and that's really a chapter about two uh, two parents who lost a daughter who had a daughter who was murdered, and um, it's sort of, in one sense, typical of my books in that it tries to range over a fairly wide. Uh, amount of territory mm-hmm. uh, to make a, a series of quite specific points,
1: and it, it takes a number of turns. I mean, even shifting to education, it really quickly off the bat. Well, we should say like it starts with the Bible. So yes, <laughs> I Sorry retell.
2: I, I start by retelling the story of David and Goliath, which is a story that I, I feel that we fundamentally misunderstand, um, and I don't want to give it all away, but um, Goliath is not what you think he is. And this is a sort of fascinating thing that uh, he's not the mighty warrior. Uh, he, in fact, may well have a profound disability, um, of which there are hints in the biblical text and has subsequently been uh, expanded upon by, by neurologists. Um, and, Goli- and David is not who you think he is. Uh, someone in a, a contemporary person viewing the battle between David and Goliath at the moment David took out his sling Would have considered David to be the favorite yeah. So this notion of David as the massive underdog is, a, uh, is an interpretation We have grafted onto that story after the fact None of the All of the Philistines And all of the Who were watching that battle The minute they realized David's not fighting Goliath sword to sword They, they said a collective Oh shit <laughs> Right um, because the sling was this extraordinarily devastating weapon in in experienced hands, and slingers beat infantrymen, of which Goliath was one all the time um so anyway, it's a it's a really fun um weirdly, which I didn't none of the David and Goliath story reinterpretation I got to until the book was almost finished,
1: oh, really, so that wasn't that wasn't something. No, yeah, so did, it,
2: it is often the case in these books that. The telling detail is the one that's added at the very end. Um.
1: Well, that I mean, the experience of of actually just reading the introduction, uh, <laughs> which is where that David and Goliath aspect lives, I did think, you know, I sort of thought like, ah, uh, you know, it's, it's like taking on the biggest, like, you think you know uh, this story in the Bible, mm-hmm. but actually you don't. Yeah. And I had this moment of being like, come on. And then when I got to the end, I thought, wow, yeah, I guess... There you go. I'm <laughs> that was the intention, yes. Um, but you started with, you have the extravagant premise. Now, did the extravagant premise uh, come to you as a premise, or did it come to you out of, you did a New Yorker piece, uh, yeah. portions of which, or large portions of which appear in the book, that's that's more what people would think of in the underdog world. It has aspects of it that are about sports. Mm-hmm. Did it start from there, or where, where did it grow
2: from? Sort of. I mean, I... I had done this piece years ago for The Post in which after I I'd met at a, some random business conference, I was chatting with a guy who ran what, as it turned out, to be a quite large software firm in Silicon Valley, an Indian guy. And of course, I knew nothing about software, so I was chatting to him. We started talking about his daughter's basketball team, which he had just coached to the national championships, and he was talking about how they didn't, none of them were any good at basketball. And he's Indian. He didn't even know anything about basketball. And because he knew nothing and they weren't any good, he looked at the game through fresh eyes and decided that they were going to play the full-court press every minute of the game, all game long, and the most aggressive form of the full-court press. Now, it's hilarious and fascinating simultaneously. It's hilarious because, of course, if you play the full-court press with 11-year-old girls, against 11-year-old girls... They will not bring the ball up. In fact, if you play the full court press all game long against 16 year old boys, they won't be able to bring the ball up. In college, full time full court press can reduce many teams to tears. So it's like what you see when you play the. What he was playing with his girls was not actually basketball, right? That's sort of. So it was both this incredibly obnoxious thing. There's a reason people don't play the full court press all game long. It's almost cruel. It's almost cruel. But then he would say, his counter to that would be, well, it's equally cruel to, to take a group of girls who have never played basketball before and play in such a way that guarantees that they will fail. Right? If they were to play basketball the normal way, they would never have won a game. So a, that's cruel. But more importantly, his point is, and I think he's kind of right, which is that he wasn't interested in teaching them basketball. They were never going to play basketball again. These were all girls from Menlo Park, for goodness <laughs> <the> sake. <laughs> you know, uh, what he was interested in teaching them was that there is no reason to be passive in the face of disadvantage. And, I think, and he says that's a life lesson that will live with them for the rest of their days. Um, and an extraordinarily important one. Just because you are about to play, uh, to play the game of basketball and you're not very good doesn't mean you can't win. It just means you have to be a little audacious, which is David's point. David is half the size of Goliath. There's no way, just because he can't fight Goliath in a duel, doesn't mean he can't defeat Goliath. It just means he has to not fight the duel, right? Um, So, And that, I think he's right. You know, I listened to him and I sort of, what he was doing was both obnoxious, but also kind of brilliant. And I thought a lot, of, the thing that I stuck in my head about that, the more I thought about it for years, was that he would never have come to any of those insights um, if his girls had been even remotely good and if he had known even a little bit about basketball.
1: He would have tried to accentuate their normal basketball yeah. skills. he would
2: have played basketball. He would have felt compelled to play basketball the normal way. So in this kind of very, very lovely way, the fact that he knew nothing and the fact that his girls were terrible was his greatest advantage. And that notion that your advantage can come out of extreme disadvantage, I just find so fascinating and um, compelling um, that I thought, you know, that that's when I sort of thought that it would be fun to write a book about this. Was that after
1: you got through the New Yorker piece and thought like, okay, I feel like there's enough meat there? Or even be- Was that, I guess part of what I'm asking is, do you do a piece like that partly to sort of float the idea like a trial balloon for yeah. what could be a book?
2: Sometimes. In that case, no. In fact, in that case, I met Vivek, who's the Indian guy, years ago, and I didn't do anything with it. And I would tell my best friend's guy named Bruce, who I grew up with and is now an editor at the Times, and he's an incredibly good editor. And I would, I would, I told him the story one day. I'd forgotten it but years later. I told him the story, and he looked at me like I was crazy, and said. And you didn't write an article about that. I was like, oh, my God, you're right. It would be a great article. So I called up Vivek. I was like, Vivek, do you remember me? We talked years ago. Can I come back out and talk about basketball? He's like, totally. Of course, Vivek subsequently bought the Sacramento Kings. I don't know if you realize it's the same Vivek who oh, just no, bought the that. Same guy. Yeah, 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 He got really into basketball. He liked it so much. <laughs> Wait, he bought... is that in the book? And I missed it. No, I didn't put it in the book. because I didn't know what to do with it in the book. But... So I didn't even I didn't get it for years. I only did it because Bruce told me how to do it. Then I did the piece, and I don't know if you remember, but nobody bought it. Like I got attacked for claiming all kinds. Of, I don't know why, but it seemed I to did, attacked. I was
1: going to ask you about that. that. Well, part of it was the Patino. It was all people, the people patino got upset because, because the yeah, the Patino
2: there. because I made this error, which is Patino by and large in his career has overwhelmingly used the full court press to take teams with very little talent a long way. Particularly Providence. Particularly Providence, yeah. Once he had a team that was as talented as any team in the history of basketball. And he pressed with them and it may have been the most dominant Final Four performance in ever. And I went to see Patino and he played me the tapes of the dominant year and so I talked about the dominant year, but it was it confused everyone because everyone said, "Well, of course he won that year because they were he had five future NBA players on the team." And I was like, "But you don't understand; it wasn't typical." But what was I going to do? I was in Louisville. Patino was playing tapes. Was I supposed to ignore? You know, it sort of. I just didn't frame it right. It was a, an error that I'm, I mean, I didn't. So you you sometimes make here. I mean, I, you get frustrated sometimes. By the way, when I feel like there is a tendency among. There is a lack of generosity sometimes among readers. So, everyone who's a sports fan knew exactly what I was talking about. But they chose, I feel people uncharitably chose to seize on the fact that I used the wrong Patino example, when they know full well that 90% of Patino's teams have been talentless. Um, So, anyway.
1: But does that feel to you like that's a quality of. you know, let's say work appearing on the Internet in general, or that's a quality of your writing, that you are set up as sort of a target for people to, mm-hmm. you know, because of success, because of selling books or what have you, or working for The New Yorker, that uh, people do that with you more than they do with
2: other people? No, I don't think they do it more with me. I, You know, on balance, the reaction to that piece was overwhelmingly positive. In fact, that was one of the reasons I decided to go forward with a book about it. In very, very specific New York-centric, internet-based media circles, (laughs) I got some shots taken at me. But that's, you have to understand that that's like dog whistling. I mean, it's such a tiny fraction of the world. Um, In the world, I would tell that story, you know, I give talks sometimes, and I would try that talk out on audiences outside of New York-centric Internet-based media organizations and people would respond very positively to it, and I—I I got incredible amounts of feedback from readers. So you—you know—you, I don't think that I'm a uh, particularly targeted one way or the other. In fact, I get a, if anything, a, uh, an exceedingly easy ride from the world. You think so? Uh, oh yeah, I get a totally easy ride from the world. I mean yeah i mean yeah i don't i've never thought otherwise why do do you i'm <laughs> now i'm getting nervous do you think i don't i mean no i mean i mean in in one sense
1: i i feel like uh you know your your writing has gotten so much acclaim but in another sense i i do feel like people like you know this sort of takedown yeah and i mean i was actually curious, i was gonna ask about this later on but well, since we're already into it i like, how do you even decide when to engage with that? Like, somebody wrote something about the um, about the Korean pilots, you know, in the uh, airliner. Yeah. From, oh, from the, Outliers, I from had outliers, a chapter outliers.
2: in Outliers on the idea that um, in aviation circles they had become convinced that um, culture was uh, a huge issue in cockpit communication, and that cultures where that were too hierarchical had difficulty having open. Uh, communication in the cockpit and that was leading to mistakes and mistakes lead to crashes and so that they were noticing that certain kinds of countries that like Korea or Colombia or China have way more plane crashes than countries like say Australia where there is no hierarchy sort of cultural hierarchy and so there was a very specific attempt made during the 1990s to retrain pilots from hierarchical cultures right. to communicate openly Um, And that was incredibly successful. Anyway, a blogger took issue with this in a way that was ultimately um, bewildering. Yeah,
1: Um, And that's the kind of thing, like, that that appeared years ago. And, like, this person has chosen sort of out of nowhere almost to say, like, I'm going to go prove that this is Mm -hmm. wrong. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that's everywhere and people are doing that to you all the time and you don't know about it. I'm just saying, like, that kind of thing surfaces and then you seems like you have to just, sort of decide, yeah. am I going mean, to respond I, to that
2: I just, I responded to him finally, but I had to do it twice. And I tried to be very generous. I think it's important to be. The, if I was going to be perfectly honest, I would say that, that guy who did that critique, he really, really didn't know what he was talking about. And it was a little bit embarrassing. And when I, when I feel like the criticism is so sort of off base, that's embarrassing. I feel like the marketplace will sort it out. Mm. I don't need to, I didn't want to like crush him. I mean, he didn't even know things like, I realized sort of halfway through that he didn't realize that English was the international language of aviation. So there's all this complicated argument about Korean and he didn't, I mean, he just didn't know anything about aviation and he hadn't read any of the literature and he hadn't, so when you're in that case, I did respond because I thought it was important just to get something on the record because he was getting a lot of, but you know, uh, but yeah, but a lot of these things are self-correcting. That's the great thing about the internet is that there are so many voices that, you know, eventually someone just weighs in on the other side. I mean, you don't really always have to, if what you're saying is correct, somebody will, if you don't weigh in, someone will weigh in on your behalf, generally speaking, I think. Right.
1: Hey everybody, this is Evan. I wanted to interrupt for one second to talk, for, talk about our sponsor, EA Sports. Uh, they have this game out, uh, FIFA 14. It is the latest in the FIFA series. Uh, Max and Aaron have basically lost an entire week playing each other in this game. I'm not even sure they're still working on long form anymore. Uh, they may not be recommending any more articles because all they do is play FIFA 14. Although I will say that having seen my nephews play this game... Uh, they are far superior players at a much younger age than those two. So we actually have a few extra copies of uh, FIFA 14 in the office. EA Sports was kind enough to send them along to us. So if you would like one, send an email to max at longform.org. Put uh, EA Sports longform podcast in the subject line. And the first five we will give away to someone if Max ever gets back to checking his email instead of playing FIFA 14. So now back to Malcolm Gladwell. Well, it takes me back to David and Goliath a little bit because the way the book progresses, I mean, some of the chapters, uh, they really sort of turn you around uh, in mm-hmm. the way that they're counterintuitive. And and I could see also different ones being, uh, like they will spawn a lot of discussion, mm-hmm. uh, each their own, um, including, I mean, one that really st- Uh, surprised me was about David Boys and about dyslexia Mm -hmm. and this sort of question of hardship as the hardship you suffer as a child, Mm -hmm. which sort of turns you into a type of underdog and then what that means in your life when you overcome it. Mm -hmm. And so that's all by way of, I kind of wanted to get back into like how you build the scaffolding of these books. So you you have one anecdote um, that sort of spurs, all right, this is, there's there's something bigger here. There's a bigger notion here. And then... How do you progress from there to gathering what are extremely disparate anecdotes? David Boys and Rick Pitino not normally classed yeah, in the same in the way. Same.
2: Well, you look in the beginning, I always start just kind of, um, well, the, each book has been a little bit different. But this one, there were two stories that I started with that I was really interested in. One was that I wanted to write about terrorism because it struck me as that's the great contemporary David and Glass" story. Um, with the focus on the Goliath, we're the Goliath, and we had the question is how ought Goliath to act in the face of, of David's, um, and so I thought long and hard about what's the right terrorism story to tell. I didn't want to tell a story that would make my readers defensive, um, or that would um, get the book dismissed as being partisan in some taking one side in some deeply partisan battle. Mm. So I wasn't going to talk about the Middle East. I wasn't going to talk about, you know, Israel and the Palestinians. I wasn't going to talk about even Vietnam, which I initially, I had a whole chapter on Vietnam. I just got rid of it because people still have really strong passions. And I settled on Northern Ireland. That was very early on. I said, okay. So I went and spent a summer in well, I spent a summer in London and commuted to <laughs> Belfast. It was really hard to spend a summer in Belfast. Much, much but, like the British military. Yes, that's right. That's like, um, and I, at that point, I knew very little about what the book was about. I just knew that there must be a really interesting way to talk about... Northern Ireland is this... It makes no sense, Northern Ireland. And particularly when you go to Belfast and you, and you, you can... The, ter- the disputed territory in Belfast... And much of the violence was in Belfast, right? And it's in four neighborhoods in Belfast. And when I realized you can walk around these four neighborhoods in 10 minutes, I began to get a sense of just what a colossal screw-up this was. I mean, I grew up in Canada, and we we got English news Mm -hmm. in the 70s. Or the CBC basically just picked up a lot of... I heard about... I feel like I heard about Northern Ireland every single day of my childhood. I mean, it was a... Preoccupation, And as a kid, I imagined that Northern Ireland was a place the size of Germany and that the two sides that were in conflict were battling, you know, had hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And this was a sort of cataclysm. Then I went to Belfast and I was like, actually, no, no, no. This is Cobble Hill, right? It's essentially what they're arguing over is Cobble Hill. And I was so completely stunned by that. And I was like, so this was it took them 30 years to sort this out. Um, and thousands of people died and the place was scarred. And I just thought this is an extraordinary, interesting story. Like a, a bunch of people with no, uh, very, very few resources who were a, a minority within their country who had, you know, been trampled on for years and years, took on the British army and essentially fought them to a standstill over 30 years. And so I thought, once I had that, I was like, okay, I've got a, that's a great narrative. Um, And then I had the narrative. I wanted to tell a story of this guy, Emil Freireich, uh, this famous cancer researcher who I had just briefly interviewed for another story I'd written and thought he was so striking and so obnoxious. And I thought a lot about him and I realized and I hated talking to him. And I wasn't even going to put him into peace. I was like, I can't believe I had to talk to that guy. And then I thought about it and I realized, wait a minute, what if his... Obnoxiousness is part of why he was able to achieve such extraordinary things as a cancer researcher. This is the guy who essentially cured childhood leukemia. Yeah. So I said, "I'm." So I said, I'm, "You know, what, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go down to Houston and I'm going to go and see him, and I'm going to s- ask him that question." And I went back, and I kind of fell in love with him. Um, I think that comes through in the chapter. Yeah. I think he's just stunningly. Uh, Fascinating, troubled, brilliant, value, heroic man. Um, he ought to be, everyone ought to know his name. Um, and it was,
1: I mean, the book goes into how his his upbringing and and his things that had happened childhood. to him as a childhood yeah. turned him sort of into a little bit of an obnoxious person or a lot of an obnoxious person or a bullheaded person. In
2: bullheaded, sense. stubborn completely indifferent to what anyone thinks of him, willing to try anything. He had nothing to lose. He was, a, he was essentially a kind of double orphan from the worst neighborhood in Chicago who at no point in his career cared whether he got fired or not. Just didn't care. He had not, no stake in the system. And his only interest was in curing a disease that everyone else thought was incurable. And he would do anything. Um, literally anything. Um, there's a footnote I have. I didn't know how to put it in the text. It was my favorite moment. You know, one, he was dealing with uh, a form of, of leukemia where the kids didn't make enough white cells. And that was on the second floor of the National Cancer Institute building. On the ninth floor was were adults with leukemia whose form of leukemia resulted in them making too many white cells. One of his ideas, when everything else was failing, was he said, why don't we just transfuse the kids who don't make enough cells with the blood of the people who are dying because their cancer makes too many cells? Now, let me just tell you that there is nowhere in the world today where where someone would even listen to one sentence of a proposal for that research project. He just did it.
1: Yeah, and there's a guy in there who just said, I remember the quote, it's like, this is a bridge too far. Like, this- it's, just
2: like, it's, just unth- it's just so unthinkable. But he was like, well, the kids, are the mortality rate from childhood leukemia in those years was 100% within six weeks. So he's like, why does anyone, why not? We have nothing to lose. Like every single, like the doctors working on that ward, they would, they would see 100 kids would die on them every year. I mean I, I don't even I can't even fathom what that's like. Um and he was a guy trying to solve the problem, you know. Um anyway, I just found him I went back and back and back to see him. I just kind of um along the way developed a affection for Houston. That's how extreme this was. <laughs> um but uh That's a bridge too far. That's I'm a bridge. Too far. No, I actually really like Houston. But um so anyway, I just started with those two stories. And then I had no idea how they would cohere but I just thought these are two stories you can build a book around, you know.
1: And when you when you start digging into research, I mean, there's obviously, as with all your books, there's a lot of social science mm-hmm. that's that's backing a lot of the, the premises of various chapters. Do you assume that the science will be there to provide interesting insights behind those people, or is it possible that you could have started with those anecdotes and gotten into the sciences? That actually, most of the social science studies actually turn out that the the uh, the favorite always wins and uh, it's not that interesting and yeah. I'm, uh, I'm going to move on.
2: Well uh, uh, there are things that I abandon because they, I realize they don't. There's a lot of stuff that never made it into this book. Some of it for that reason but hmm. others really for other reasons mostly. Usually my kind of interest on in the social science side and my interest in the story develop simultaneously so i usually have a vague notion in my head about uh what kind of what might be interesting on a kind of f- theoretical level to discuss along with the story now it doesn't have to be you know in, one of the things that i found is each book has i feel like each book i've written the social science has played a smaller and smaller role hmm. tipping point is very heavy on social science this book is actually Comparison quite light on it. So, I, I, I'm, I, as I get older, I'm less interested in having the social science do all that much work. Um, I'm much more interested in the stories. Um, and it's because I realize, you know, my great hero as a writer is Michael Lewis. who I, I just think Michael Lewis, I think Michael Lewis is, believe it or not, the most underrated writer of my generation. I think he's the one who will be read 50 years from now. Um, and I think what he does is so extraordinary from a kind of degree of difficulty standpoint Mm -hmm. Um, you know uh, The Big Short is a gripping book fascinating utterly gripping book about derivatives I mean I don't even think as a I it blows me away how insanely hard that book was to do and it's brilliant um uh, the Blind Side, I think, is a. It might be the most perfect book I've read in 25 years. I don't. I don't think there's a single word in that that I would change if I was. Um, I just think it has everything. But he has no. He uses no science, right? Very all little. Story. It's all story. But he does more work in his stories, makes much more profound points than I do by dragging in all of these sociologists and psychologists. That's the, he's proved to me that if you can tell a story properly, you don't need this kind of scaffolding. You can just tell the story. Um, And so I've been trying to, not entirely successfully, but trying to move in that direction over the last couple books. And
1: does that mean uh, still doing the same research and reporting and then just putting it in the back of your mind and telling the stories or does it mean actually not going to the science at all and trying to develop your own insights around yeah. the stories themselves you No, know,
2: I always go to the science I mean that's mostly because that's one of the parts that's most fun but also because why wouldn't you it's like checking in with these all these brilliant minds I mean and I don't think I can ever get to the stage I don't think I'll ever I'm not as good as Michael so I don't think I can I can't do a single narrative I'm always going to need something it's just that I've been much more selective. I tried to be much more selective in this book about how much of the science I put in. Um, but there's an awful lot, the footnotes have grown exponentially as these books as have gone on. Because now what I do is I stick all the science in the footnotes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just don't, I just no longer feel the need to put it all in the text.
1: And do you, your your books have this, they're, they're sort of these collections of characters that... As the book progresses, it's sort of like there's this growing group of people, mm-hmm. and you often refer back to them mm-hmm. in later chapters. So you know, like David Boys, you're you're mm-hmm. kind of calling back to them. And do you prefer that mode of working to sort of like a single character narrative, like A Blind Side, or yeah. is that something you just fall into?
2: I I don't think uh, people realize how hard it is to do a single narrative book. Um, Michael, one of, this, one of the things I admire about Michael Lewis, he seems to be able to do it effortlessly. I don't think I could pull it off. Um, maybe it's because I've never found an individual whose story is rich enough. But maybe I'm just not as good at developing a single story. Um, I just think that's kind of beyond me a little bit. Um, I'm surprised to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I think it's too hard. Uh, I would lose faith in my ability to kind of keep the reader engaged. I'm much too nervous a writer. I feel like I've got to keep giving you more different stories to kind of pad it out, Um, uh, whereas the amount of self-confidence that you feel in Michael Lewis's work or Janet Malcolm's work, I mean, I was just rereading Psychoanalysis and Impossible Profession. That book is just like, it's... And same thing with... um, the Journalist and the Murderer. These books are... She's so extraordinarily sure of her gift. She knows... and she She's not in any hurry to start. And she knows you stay with her, right? Because she knows she can deliver, right? You're not going to run out of gas halfway through. I don't have that um, uh, certainty. You know, she's, to use a sports metaphor... Um, Janet Malcolm and Michael Lewis are the people you who are quite happy to take the last shot. I'm going to pass. I, I'm not. i not taking the last shot.
1: <laughs> but it's also true that you, and I'm interested what how you conceive it or what you call it. But you know, people would say I would say that you sort of, if not invented, you you have carved out something called you know the idea narrative book or a book where the main character is an idea Mm -hmm. and that character i mean it actually is in some sense a single character book Mm -hmm. that character is just like a concept rather than an -hmm. individual person and do you sort of look around and say uh now look at all these people that are doing this because there's just there's just books after books that Mm -hmm. are sort of they seem like they're chasing that same model
2: well, I don't think I invented this. So, I felt I was just participating in a genre. So, I feel like we're all just in the same genre. Um, I never, ever thought, have ever thought that what I have done is is uh, original in that way. I mean, I think I'm quite happy to say my work is original in other ways, but I don't think as a kind of on a on the level of form or genre, I don't think of myself as an innovator.
1: Was it when you wrote The Tipping Point, was there a book that you looked to and said, I hope The Tipping
2: Point is like X? Well, you know, the book, I had read a book called The Person in the Situation, which is this famous work of psychology by um, Dick Nisbet and um, uh, I'm mortally embarrassed that I can't remember his co-writer. And it's a book by two psychologists that explores a series of ideas Uh it explores an idea that there is a single. It's a single character narrative about in which the character is an idea, which is the idea is that situations matter more than we think, and people's innate traits matter less. And they kind of each chapter explores this idea in a slightly different way. Um, that book is the tipping point. The difference is they're not journalists, so they didn't. The narratives they attach to this exploration of the idea aren't rich in the way that a journalist's narratives are rich, but it's you know, they were doing something. Even they wouldn't say they were inventing a genre. I'm sure they had a book they were thinking. But I read books like that. I was like, oh, I'm just going to do a book like that. Only I'm going to use my I'm going to attach real stories to it. So they might have pulled a story out of the newspaper or a story from history and told it in four paragraphs. And I was like, well, I'll tell it in four pages. so it, that's it. Struck me as being something that was. I mean, Nisbet is a, in my writing, is a um, tremendously influential figure. So mm-hmm. he, took, not not with this last book, but my first three books are very heavily influenced by Dick Nisbet's work. Um, and so I would, if I was going to pay homage to somebody, be it would it would be to him. I, I just like I say, I think I'm just I'm dressing up a genre that he. I feel like. I learned from him,
1: but then sometimes the uh, the concepts that are in the books get attached to your name in this particular way. Yeah, and, and like the ten thousand hour rule is like seems like a classic example of people will say Malcolm Gladwell's ten thousand hour rule, and it's yeah. sort of referred to as that way. Even though, as you sort of had it, uh, you know, there was a recent blog post on the New Yorker about this yeah. that it's actually it's not yours; it's someone else's. Yeah, you're sort of interpreting it. Is that something that, I mean, in terms of, I don't know, your publisher selling books, that seems like a positive thing mm-hmm. uh, in terms of you wanting to convey a certain authenticity about the work you're writing about. That seems like a difficult thing.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's very distressing to me, A, because I, it, it quite properly annoys and insults the researchers who did actually had the original idea. B, it makes me seem like I'm ripping off their idea when, in fact, I try to be scrupulous um, as people just forget the um, fact that I have referenced these people. But thirdly, it's a way in which people use to dismiss the idea. So they say, well, you know, like we were talking about the plane crash thing. The guy in the blog post talked about Gladwell's theory of as if this was something I dreamt up in my apartment, so it was easy to dismiss. This guy's, well, I'm in my apartment and I can dismiss it because it's just two guys arguing it from their apartments. But it's not my idea. It's an idea that has an extraordinarily deep grounding in the social science literature, A, but also in the practice of human factors engineering in the world of aviation. Um, So people use it, I think, to to take a shortcut in dealing with the substance. Um, I once actually conducted a test of this. Um, because I was so concerned about the way people would edit out my, the attributions I would give. Mm-hmm. So I gave a speech on a number of occasions before academic audiences, in which I was talking about the ideas of a guy named David Galenson, who was an economist. And I deliberately inserted Galenson's name into the speech on four occasions, each time stating very plainly that the concept I was discussing was his, and then on the fifth occasion, I said, I mentioned him a fifth time and his book a fifth time. And I said, and you should buy the book. It's really brilliant. And I named the title of the book, right? And then I went on these academic message boards to see how people responded to the speech. Lo and behold, I discover on a quite a prominent social science message board, this long discussion of how Gladwell claimed that gave a speech in which he said he made up this notion about blah 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 it's actually David Galenson's and then like there were 15 comments about that you know that bastard I can't believe the way he rips off academics <laughs> and on and on and on and on I was like ugh oh. right so it's just my point it's like people don't hear it I mean not only to be malicious I just think that if you Stand up and give a speech, or your name is attached to an article. the The way your memory works is you attach what you've read to the author of the article, right? It's sure. just hard to do that kind of triangle, to triangulate to the person being quoted.
1: And does that enter into your mind uh, when you're writing? I mean, when I was reading *David and Goliath*, I, there were these. There's a part where a couple of times it basically you pose the question like. You wouldn't want your children to have dyslexia or to lose a parent, would you? And I just thought, like, I can see what I can see the article where someone says Malcolm Gladwell argues that there should be more children with dys- dyslexia, even though there's a whole structure of the argument, and actually it turns in a different way later on, which we don't have yeah. to spoil. But um, are you are you playing with that notion in some sense?
2: Well, I'm, uh, you know. Uh, do I mind that there's controversy about things in my book? I don't think I do. I think I'm quite happy about it. Um, I, uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to kind of... My baseline position is that... And you have to have this position if you write books, as you say, where the main character is an idea. I think ideas are really fun. And they exist to have fun with if that makes sense. Um, That is to say, if you can't enjoy yourself in the discussion of ideas, you're wasting your time. It's like, you know, go and get a job, you know, on an assembly line. Like, the whole point of reading stuff, now, when I say have fun, I don't mean be frivolous or trivial or pretend that nothing matters. I mean, look, you you ought to be able to try new ideas on for size, evaluate them, play with them, toy with them, and then decide whether you want to incorporate them into your own intellectual arsenal. My position is that most people, educated people in the world, like doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the popularity of my books has proved that to be true. People don't buy my books and then go around saying, adopting every one of those ideas as their own. No, no I've talked to thousands of people who have books. I've yet to meet anyone who's bought every single idea hook line and sinker no they read it and they think that's interesting i like this part of it uh this part i don't buy that's really cool but mm, not so sure or my experience on this is slightly different that they toy with them right that's what you're supposed to do um and it's funny because i feel like readers do that my sort of, the average reader does that completely easily and naturally critics sort of self-appointed critics don't they have a much harder, it's just an odd thing about when you're in the formal position of criticizing something, sometimes you lose your capacity to play with the idea.
1: Yeah, and and, to, and potentially to know that that's what you're doing. To, yeah. to sort of ta- take what you're saying as that you are supplying gospel for yeah. everyone else that they should be
2: the, there's a guy. There's a guy, I love this blog, Marginal Revolution, oh, yeah, written by Tyler Cohen. Um, And the thing that I love about it is I love Tyler Cohen is someone who has the perfect form of this attitude. So he if an idea is interesting, he loves it. His first evaluation is, is it interesting and provocative and does it make me think not? Do I agree with it or even is it right? So he will say that sometimes he will criticize things by essentially says he'll say it's. Uh, probably right and as a result really boring. He'll say something like that or he'll say it's fascinating but probably because it isn't true. But what he means is, but you can learn and, you know, and in parentheses, and you can learn a lot from that, right? But he's kind of, he's curious and he's always interested to figure out whether someone can challenge his belief system. And the minute I read that book, that, that discovered that blog, I was like, I love this guy. <laughs> this is what <laughs> The world of ideas ought to be about.
1: Although, if you're going to do that, you also have to have a serious stomach for sort of internet uh, commentary. And yeah, oh, you know. he
2: has an iron, as far as I can tell. Total, <laughs> he has. It doesn't phase him at all. Um, you know, but the best do. You know, I've noticed. I just started tweeting, and I've noticed that Matt Iglesias, who similarly has very Catholic open tastes. 'll we'll retweet some of those vicious tweets against him which I think is hilarious uh, it's good for him to Yeah, kind of that's, a, that's a disable to sort of Twitter uh, yeah, move ju- ju- ju-
1: um, I, I also wanted to ask you about just about a little bit about reporting um, just because I'm curious I mean the books have been successful so a lot of people would be familiar with your work in some sense and some mm-hmm. of them maybe even have read the criticism or had this reaction to it and You know, one of the advantages of of most reporters is that when they go talk to people, the people don't know who they are. They don't know what they've done. It also could be a disadvantage. But do you find yourself going into situations where reporting is more difficult because people already have some sort of opinion about your work and you have to overcome that? Or
2: on the other hand, that it's easier because people know what you're up to? It's way easier. And it's easier for a very specific reason, not because I'm... Well known, although I, that doesn't hurt. It is, I think, because I am rarely nasty. So I try and follow the rule that if I write about you, I do not want you ever to um, regret having talked to me. Mm. So in cases where I think the person will regret having talked to me, I don't usually don't do the story or don't use the person's interview or don't use the parts that I think they'll regret having said. I censor... Uh, Well, partly that's just my personality. Partly it's because I don't... There's a very, very limited amount of negative stuff you can put in a book or an article before you turn most of your audience away. Hmm. I think negative stuff is interesting the first time and you'll never reread a negative article. You'll reread a positive one. And I think a lot of the reason why my books have have a long shelf life is because they are optimistic. And optimism permits... Um, that kind of longevity. Um, But more importantly, I think, uh, you know, if someone, as a journalist, if you interview someone, it's your job to select out what is relevant to the story you want to tell and not to use what's not relevant to the story you want to tell. So I remember once in doing a story where the guy I was writing about turned out all kinds of people who knew him and knew him well said on the record all kinds of very nasty things about him. He's a narcissist. He's massively insecure. He was mean to his ex-wife, or etc., those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. None of those things were relevant to the story I was telling, which was about what this guy did for a living. And I left all of it out. Um, I even found out stuff which I won't go into, which, you know, one would be tempted to use it, but I feel very strongly that you cannot use it. It would have embarrassed him and that wasn't the point of the piece. If he was a if he was if I was writing a piece about some guy convicted of a crime, I would use it. If I was writing about a Wall Street guy who pulled off some massive scam, is it of relevance that he's a massive narcissist or insecure or blah, blah, blah? maybe it is, yeah. So in that case I'd think hard about it, but it wasn't in my case. And that versions of, I do versions of that all the time. Hmm. Um, and I think what's happened is that people have seen that level of of generosity, if that's what it is, or restraint in my writing, and feel safe. So you haven't left a sort of angry wake of people who are... Yeah, I think uh, that's a... And I think a lot of... I mean, think about Michael Lewis's writing. Again, Michael Lewis is the great... Um, he makes his his ability to make someone who is sort of marginal and eccentric to see what's beautiful about them. He wrote a book about Maury Taylor. I don't know if you read that one. about It's random guy who ran for president maybe 20 years ago. It was just a sort of a crank, but a <laughs> lovable crank. And the, the beautiful thing about Michael Lewis, and I, sort of, I learned this from him is that he takes people completely at face value. He never questions your, your sort of sincerity which is this extraordinarily hard thing to do and a lovely thing as well. And so he writes this book. It's actually this charming book about he went around the country campaigning with this eccentric millionaire from, libertarian millionaire from Michigan. Uh got like, he was in the tire business. He got like, you know, 0.001% of the vote. But Michael follows him around, writes a whole book about it. It's totally hilarious and lovely and wonderful. And you love Maury Taylor by the end. And it's because he gave you an edited version right a lovely a wonderfully edited version and by the way that's not false that's actually true it's what we do with our friends right it's what we do with our parents it's what we do with everyone that we love we edit our impressions of them we're blind to their in, to their faults in a kind of very beautiful way and there's no reason why journalists can't do the same i i really object to this notion of journalism as a kind of you know, if you if they said it, you print it. No. If they said it, you think long and hard about whether it's necessary. And you think long and hard about the sense in which they were speaking, and you think long and hard about whether, if you ask them that question again, they would answer it the same way. And if you don't think they would answer it the same way a second time, you can't use it. You can't, it's not a game of gotcha. And would you ask them again? Absolutely, I will. I can't tell you how many times I call someone up and I say, well, you said this. Is that, did you really mean that? Would you, and, they'll, and they'll, they'll send me back an email and they'll rephrase it and I'll use the rephrase. Like people's, most people who do not explain themselves for a living aren't expert at it, right? Or they don't, or don't explain themselves in front of journalists for a living. Don't watch when they, most people spend 95% of their time talking to people who are, Uh, by definition generous listeners your wife is a generous listener she knows what you mean she's not taking the worst possible interpretation of what you say so they're not governing their speech in the way that you would if you're obama and you're used to being so if you're talking to someone who is naive in that sense i mean that in a um which and most of the people journalists like me talk to are naive in that sense they have Rarely talked to a journalist before, sure. if ever. Right. Then you have to protect them. That's part of the deal. Um, it's so interesting that you say that because I was actually
1: looking. I was reading the uh, story about this guy Vivek yeah. uh, in the New Yorker, and I was trying to. I was sort of trying to s- suss out how does the story transform, and I was asking mm-hmm. you about how does it transform when you turn it into the book. And one thing that stood out to me was that when I read the magazine version. He talks about playing a team in East Palo Alto, mm. and he mentions that uh, they're all black. I know. And I know. in the book...
2: I took it out. It's not in there. Yes. is that, That's an example of that. I think I did him a disservice. Uh, he was using shorthand. First of all, he's an immigrant to America. He's an Indian guy. His codes for talking about this kind of stuff is different. And he didn't know anything about basketball. It's not like... So he's what he meant to say was they come from a community where basketball is a very serious business. In my world, it's not. In my world, the girls study, go home and study biology and go to tennis lessons. They not even know what a basketball is. In that world, that's what they do. That's what he was saying. And I realized if I, I read that over and felt badly because I realized that I'm, there were some readers who might have thought that what he was doing was kind of, Slagging on black—that's not, not even slagging, but just kind of being a kind of rich guy and looking down his nose. And it wasn't that at all. He was—he was just talking about the difference between the way his daughter was raised and the way you would be raised if you came from that community. And it's just—it is different. He's a—he's a multimillionaire from Palo Alto, right? He's like it's like my girl's childhood has nothing in common. And he's absolutely right, right? But I don't think there wasn't a whiff of. Uh, you know, he's standing there with Roger Craig, who's like his best friend, who's that's like the thing we didn't mention yeah. was that Roger, Roger Craig, Craig is who's a, himself you San know.
1: Francisco 49ers running back is yeah. also a coach of the team. Yeah. <laughs> yes,
2: that's right. It gets very that's just a fun story because the the best stories are sort of messy at the edge, right? The reason that original story in the New Yorker was an act of mischief, right? Because at the edges it all falls apart. It's like he's got he's got Roger Craig coaching his <laughs> team. He's he's like a multi multi millionaire. He, he's just like it's just it's you know it's eleven year old girl basketball. When you think about it, it's like not you know. So it's it was I was I was what attracted to me about it was its imperfection as a story. To me, the imperfection was the perfection. It was like sort of endlessly kind of you really had to abstract the lesson and to sort of let the details. The details are kind of hilarious <laughs> and. Whatever.
1: Well, I don't know that much about Roger Craig, but one of the things he was famous for was this fitness regimen.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, that he
1: would like pull tires up a hill and things yeah. like that. So I imagine like he's teaching these little girls like they're running them to death. Oh my god, practice, they, ran they completely
2: like ran to death. So that's the other thing, you know, if you teach, if you get a group of eleven-year-olds insanely fit on an aerobic level, they really can play maniacal defense all game long, and you can't beat them. I mean, you just know That's all. That's all you do. If you never practice anything except running, <laughs> then you're going to be able to play amazing defense. That's just, I just think that insight is just so hilarious. Well,
1: that actually leads me to a couple more things I wanted to ask. Uh, besides the question of whether or not, is Rick Pitino now going to be the coach of the Sacramento Kings? Maybe that could be like the
2: ultimate connectivity. Oh, wouldn't that be hilarious? That would this. be, that would be, uh, yeah, that would be, uh, um, uh, I sort of doubt it, but it would be hilarious if true. <laughs> but, um,
1: but i just want i did want to ask just in the principle of the book uh the interesting thing about those those girls or even some of the other examples are that when someone exploits the advantage as mm. an underdog then in some sense they're no longer the underdog like yes. that girls team by the time they had played a bunch of games they didn't lose to anyone until um, yeah. they they get yeah. up to the nationals but they're actually not really underdogs anymore mm-hmm. uh I don't know what question I'm asking. I was just curious what the rhetorical... No, 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 this is, the this, is, this is great.
2: No, this is sort of like... <clears throat> I don't get into this in the book. It's the great unanswered question of the book. It's sort of like if you were to do another book. So the, the categories are in motion. So Goliaths are... are you kind of turn into a Goliath and then you you kind of get toppled because of your bigness and you you're back into a kind of... You fall to the bottom again. And then David's after a while no longer David's. Facebook is no longer an underdog. It's now everything it once despised. Um I am everything I once despised, right? I used to be I think of this all the time. When I was twenty five, I used to write these incredibly snotty, hostile articles attacking big name nonfiction journalists. Now I read them and I'm like, Oh my god, they're they're doing a me on me. You know, they're doing exactly what I did. Who, who years did ago. you go after? Oh god, I remember going after um uh, I did a cover story for the New Republic, just eviscerating a book about viruses that was a bestseller by Douglas Preston. Oh yeah, called. I mean, I, but I did, I did tons of these back then, like for as book reviews. I was a, I was a hatchet man, right? A critic. I, I was you know me and Jacob Weisberg, my roommate in those years. That's what we did. I mean, we were the little guys who went after the big guy, and now we're you know we're no longer the little guys. So it's this constant sort of, uh, it's part of the kind of cycle of. Um, and the great question is Is there any way to be big And still behave as if you're small And I don't know if that's I don't know if that's possible I mean i you can try And you can sort of try and live By the same principles that you once had But it is very difficult um, You know uh, I don't have to work as hard As I did when I was 25 To get access to people Or to um, You know does that make me softer or lazier i don't know it's a something i should be concerned about though well thanks very much for doing this really appreciate it it's a
1: great place to end thanks for listening to the long form podcast i'm evan ratliff and uh a special thanks to malcolm gladwell for joining us he's in the middle of out being out promoting his book which is called david and goliath if you want to pick it up uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. Thanks to Lauren Kirchner, our editor. Thanks to our intern, which is Gavin Jenkins this week. And we hope you'll join us again next week. And uh, thanks also to our sponsors, EA Sports and Tiny Letter.